ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Workplace surveillance. Just how closely can your employer monitor you? Working from home may not be as private as you think. One woman has been fired from her job after 18 years after her boss monitored her activity and found she wasn't typing enough on her computer. I held a job for 18 years. I, I was a hard worker um, and, I, and I, was, I was a loyal worker. The employer produced a report based on so-called key logging and mouse tracking. What that report showed was that over a time when Mashika was working at home, she recorded less than the level that the employer, IAG, deemed an appropriate measure. Sacked for her shortfall in keystrokes, the case of Susie Shako that's coming up later here on The Law Report. Hi, Damien Carrick with you. First, when should the identity of an accused facing sexual assault charges be named in the media? Last week, for the first time, journalists were able to fully report on the latest developments in the prosecution of Bruce Lerman, who is facing two charges of rape in Queensland, which he denies. Those Queensland charges are completely unrelated to earlier sexual assault charges he faced in the ACT. Now, Identifying the high-profile accused for the first time with respect to the Queensland charges was possible because the Queensland Supreme Court had found that there were no grounds for a non-publication order. University of Melbourne Law School Associate Professor Jason Bosland is a leading expert in suppression laws. Jason Bosland, remind us, who is Bruce Lerman? Damien, Bruce Lerman uh, is the parliamentary staffer who was accused by Brittany Higgins of raping her in Linda Reynolds' office. And of course, there were charges that were laid against him in relation to that that were ultimately dropped. And so he's now facing additional charges for rape of a different woman in Toowoomba. And to be clear, you're talking there about uh, Linda Reynolds, a former Morrison government minister, and the alleged events that took place in, in Parliament House in, in 2019. And to be absolutely clear, last year that trial was aborted uh, following juror misconduct and prosecutors decided not to seek a retrial because of concerns that this would place on the mental health of the complainant. So to be clear, Bruce Lerman has always denied anything, any wrongdoing and has never been found guilty of any sexual offending. What are these charges that Bruce Lerman now faces in Queensland that we've just been learning about now? He faces two rape charges that arose from a relationship that he had with a, a woman in Queensland, whereby it's alleged that he engaged in stealthing, which is the removal of a condom during sexual intercourse. And uh, he denies these allegations. Now, why is the media only now able to identify Bruce Lerman as the accused with respect to these Queensland charges? Well, up until relatively recently, there was a statutory prohibition in Queensland which prevented the identification of any person charged with a sexual assault offence. 
up until the point that they had been committed to trial. So if they were committed to trial, to stand trial, then then the accused could be identified. But prior to that, there was a statutory prohibition. That prohibition has now been amended so that it's been essentially abolished and replaced with um, what you might call discretionary powers to prevent the publication of the identity of an accused. And um, the way it has played out is that Bruce Lerman hasn't been able to establish that there should be a non-publication order with respect to his identity. So a committal proceeding is where a decision is made that there is sufficient evidence to proceed to a full trial and that that's a step which takes place in every uh, serious criminal proceeding. So the laws around Queensland which have just been changed, do they bring that state into line with other jurisdictions around Australia? Yes, they do. So so that statutory prohibition doesn't exist in other jurisdictions. So this change does bring Queensland into line with the rest of the country. And what was the rationale for those Queensland laws which were amended? I suppose the rationale is that quite serious allegations like that, if if they're not tested in court, can have quite a significant impact on on someone's reputation. So there were certainly reputational concerns there. And, you know, mud sticks. And I think that that was the main rationale there. Okay. So the law changed in Queensland. He was about to be identified. He tried to stop that. He sought a non-publication order. That process ended up with a decision of the Supreme Court of Queensland. What arguments did lawyers for Bruce Lerman mount and on what basis did the Supreme Court of Queensland say, no, there are no grounds for a non-publication order with respect to this case? There are three grounds upon which a person charged with a sexual assault can now seek a non-publication order. One is that the order is necessary to prevent prejudice to the proper administration of justice. And that might arise, for example, where someone is facing a sexual assault case and then they're charged with an additional offence, a separate additional offence, which is to be tried separately. And there might be an order made there to prevent the person being named in the second case in order to ensure the integrity of the first case, so to prevent, for example, juror prejudice in the first case. The other ground is where the order is necessary to prevent undue hardship or distress to a complainant or a witness in relation to a charge. Now, that might arise, for example, where you have the complainant or a witness being able to be identified if the accused were identified. Um, So it might be that there's some sort of relationship between them that would identify the complainant. And then the third is where the order is necessary to protect the safety of any person. And that is the main basis upon which Lerman argued that he should have a suppression order. Essentially, he argued that suppression order or non-publication order, as they're sometimes called, should be granted to prevent the publication of his identity because he was suffering some mental health effects of of all of the allegations that have been made against him over the past few years, and this would exacerbate that. So what did Justice Applegarth of the Supreme Court have to say about that argument with respect to the dangers posed by publication on his health? The judge had some pretty scathing things to say about the the media uh, interviews that Bruce Lerman had given. Here, the judge said that there had been no error committed by the magistrate in declining to grant the order. But as part of his reasoning, he looked at whether or not the magistrate's decision was unreasonable. So that was one of the grounds that that Bruce Lerman was relying upon. And Justice Applegarth said, no, 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 the decision to decline um, the granting of the non-publication order wasn't unreasonable. And there are a number of reasons why he supported the magistrate's conclusion. One being that Bruce Lerman had given 
various media interviews since the charges had been laid against him. And so that was really evidence that if he was able to do that, then publicity wasn't really having that much of an effect on his um, mental state. And those interviews related to the allegations of, of sexual assault, which he denied, which which had taken place yes. at Parliament House. And I think in one interview with Channel 7, he said, quote, let's light some fires. And mm. he wanted to kind of get his position out there to, to the general public. Yes. And so, so, so that was one of the reasons that the judge found that the magistrate's decision to decline the order was not unreasonable and um, declined the judicial review application. So the crux of it is is that the judge was saying the argument that publication will cause harm to you because of the attention it brings is negated by the fact that you have engaged with the media and brought attention to yourself. Is that is that really That's exactly right, yes. Jason Boslin, looking beyond this case, what, what's the big picture here? When will judges suppress the identity of an accused? There are various circumstances. As I said before, one situation is where an order preventing the publication of an accused identity would prevent prejudice or is necessary to prevent prejudice to the administration of justice. And that will arise in a range of different cases. And one case where we saw that was the George Pell case, uh, where he was facing back-to-back trials on historical child sex offences. And in order to protect the integrity of the second trial, the first trial was uh, suppressed. And that wasn't just Pell's identity, it was actually the entire trial. So any reporting whatsoever of that trial was was suppressed. Because you didn't want reporting of one trial tainting the jury pool in a subsequent trial. That's right, yes. And because they were similar charges, they were both related to child sex offences, there was a concern that the jury in the second trial, having heard that he'd been, for example, convicted of child sex offences in the first trial, would treat that as tendency evidence, what we call tendency evidence. So that Pal had a tendency to commit these types of offences. And what about the gangland trials in, in Victoria? There was a lot of suppression around those series of trials. Why? Some of those orders would have been made to prevent prejudice in, in a very similar way to the what I just described that was issued in, in PAL. There were other circumstances as well where an order like that would be made, and they were made in, in the gangland trials. One would be where you've got two co-accused and one pleads guilty and the other pleads not guilty, and you would want to get a suppression order to prevent the publication of the guilty plea and also the sentence that has been imposed upon the co-accused who's pleaded guilty in order to prevent the jury hearing that 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 had occurred, because that would indicate that the uh, person who was pleaded not guilty, in fact, committed the crime. So, Jason Boslin, how do states around Australia compare when it comes to suppression orders? Does the idea of open justice trump in some jurisdictions more than in others? Look, there isn't what I call a myth that Victoria is the suppression order capital of Australia. Certainly, we have too many suppression orders in Victoria, but we also have too many suppression orders in other jurisdictions as well. This idea that Victoria is the suppression order capital has arisen from data that is often cited comparing the number of suppression orders in Australian jurisdictions. Based on that raw data, you would say, yes, Victoria makes many more suppression orders than other jurisdictions. The problem is, it's really twofold. One is that we don't have complete data from other jurisdictions. So, for example, we have data coming out of New South Wales, which indicates that they might make, say, 150 suppression orders a year. 
in that jurisdiction compared to 400 and something in Victoria, for example. The problem is, is that the New South Wales data only captures orders made by the Supreme Court, not all courts in the judicial hierarchy. And so that really skews the results. If you then look at, for example, South Australia, where there is complete data and it might indicate that 250 orders are made every year compared to 400-odd in Victoria, the issue is that while there may be more made in Victoria, you really need to factor in caseload, court workload and adjust the figures for that. So if you do that... In fact, South Australia, in terms of the rate of suppression in proportion to sort of caseload, if you like, is much higher than Victoria. And then the other thing that I think needs to be factored in is just differences in law. So in some jurisdictions, you would have an automatic statutory ban on the publication of certain things, whereas in other jurisdictions, you don't. Now, in the jurisdictions where those automatic bans don't exist, it may be that a court has to grant a suppression order in a particular case to prevent publication. So it's a combination of things which need to be taken into account in order to compare. And I just don't think at the moment we have the data to do that. University of Melbourne Law School Associate Professor Jason Bosland, expert in suppression laws. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Pleasure. Thanks, Damien. Damien Carrick with you. You're listening to The Law Report on RN. Do follow the program on the ABC Listen app. How closely can your employer monitor you, especially in the post-COVID world where many people have embraced work from home or a hybrid model of working sometimes from home and sometimes in the office? Susie Chaco, a home-based worker, was fired by an insurance company after her keystrokes were counted and found to be unsatisfactory. Professor Peter Leonard is based at the UNSW School of Management and Governance. He also runs Data Synergies, a business and legal consultancy. So the employer produced a report based on so-called key logging and mouse tracking. And uh, what that report showed was that over a time when Mashika was working at home, she recorded less than the level that the employer, IAG, deemed an appropriate measure of the number of keystrokes per hour. So what they produced at the at the hearing and what had earlier been produced in discussions with Masheko was a report that looked at the number of keystrokes that she'd made over an hour and measured over a day and it was found that there were significant periods of time in the course of a working day when she was either apparently inactive or recording significantly uh, less than 500 keystrokes per hour. Yes, some of the figures are very interesting. She she failed to work her 7.8 hours on 44 of the 49 days which were measured. She failed to begin work at 7.30 on 47 out of those 49 days. She failed to perform any work on four of the 49 days. On the day she worked, there were very low keystroke activity, which indicated she wasn't performing the work required. And I think there were 48 keystrokes per hour during this period and 117 hours where there were no keystrokes at all. So very, very precise monitoring of what 
she was doing or not doing on her computer. Although it's fair to say, Damien, that keystroke monitoring is just one of many ways in which monitoring is now taking place. Other common monitoring practices are uh, recording what's on a screen, taking screenshots at periods of time, uh, webcam monitoring and checking physical performance, physical presence rather, and facial expressions of the person using the webcam, application usage recording, recording and analysing instant messages and email usage, recording telephone calls and uh, recording social media usage and calendar monitoring. So although the keystroke monitoring sounds potentially of itself intrusive, it's important to be aware that there are many other ways in which workplace monitoring is in fact quite commonplace today. Do you have to tell your worker, your employee, that these are the kinds of surveillance that an employer is is uh, embarking on or taking? Well, unfortunately, the law in Australia is inconsistent. Uh, I described it in a recent article as an incoherent mess. So it varies state by state. But certainly in New South Wales and the ACT, there is an obligation to give notice to affected employees at least 14 days before the monitoring activity commences. That is not the case in many other states, and indeed um, most states don't have legislation specifically regulating workplace surveillance. Many states have legislation that regulates the use of surveillance devices more generally, but generally those laws built on the basis of notice and uh, inferred consent through the giving of notice. So a fair summary is that there is no requirement of prior consent in the form of agreement of employees to uh, employee surveillance across Australia. And indeed, in many cases, there is not an express requirement for employees to be given prior notice or to be involved in any consultation as to whether the surveillance is reasonable and proportional. So essentially, generally speaking, employers can do what they like provided they let you know that they're doing it. That's right. As well as productivity, there could be other reasons to monitor workers. I'm thinking things like workplace safety, information security, commercial confidentiality. Yes, that's right. And indeed, in some sectors, there's a requirement to actually monitor employees in the workplace. So, for example, in the financial services sector, It's required by law to monitor the activities in trading rooms to, amongst other things, detect uh, insider trading. One of the common reasons for uh, monitoring or given for monitoring by many employers is uh, information security. And that indeed became a um, critical issue for many employers as a result of working from home during COVID and there was justifiable concern of many employers that employees would be working in home environments that were not 
um, appropriately controlled in the way that many workplaces are nowadays against hacking or external extrusions. So there are many legitimate reasons to monitor people around productivity, but can the surveillance be just way too intrusive? And that might that also be used for illegitimate purposes? I, b- I believe that there's been a lot of concern in the USA about the impact of monitoring on the ability of workers to maybe talk to each other and, and organise industrially. Yes, um, I think um, that's been a particular concern in the US because there isn't the kind of protective legislation around industrial organisation that we have uh, in Australia. And there has been significant evidence that uh, a number of employers in the US have used surveillance technologies to monitor activities of union organisers who are seeking to bring together employees around a particular cause, including monitoring of email activity and, um, in one case, uh, monitoring, as in electronic listening, of the room in which uh, union organising was occurring. So one can understand the concerns in the US around um, these types of technologies. And you can have very sophisticated levels in a, in a workplace, even involving physical work, you can have very sophisticated levels of, of digital surveillance. A- Amazon is famous for this. What do they do? Well, I don't know about Amazon in particular, but um, many uh, warehouses have quite detailed surveillance through the combination of optical and surveillance of activity on a production or distribution or physical handling line. And a common feature of that is so-called time off task, TOT, accountability, And uh, I've seen reports in the US of employers applying TOT thresholds, such as if you exceed 30 minutes time off task on three separate days in a one-year period, then at least you may be the subject to counselling activity and you may indeed be the subject to dismissal. So there's now quite detailed and prescriptive requirements that are based upon surveillance over extended periods of time and across a range of activities, including time off task to go to the toilet and uh, uh, to have a cup of coffee and so on, such that the employer builds up a view across the entirety of the day as to whether the employee has been, as it were, on the tools for the requisite period. And what are the tools of surveillance used to make that happen? I mean, I guess you can have CCTV, but also what item scanners used by employees to to kind of, you know, keep keep track of the amount of uh, time it takes to complete a particular kind of task, these sorts of things? And this is where the AI is becoming very sophisticated. So, for example, the AI might be intelligence off the back of an optical camera which has identified a particular worker undertaking a particular task and analysed how quickly they perform that task relative to the complexity of the task. So um, the AI makes it, as it were, easy for an employer to deal with what might otherwise be commonplace employee 
responses which say, for example, um, well, this task took longer because I had to go further to complete the task or because the production line had slowed down so I couldn't perform as many tasks in an hour as I might otherwise. So um, the sophistication of now readily available surveillance technologies is enabling quite uh, prescriptive and quantitative monitoring of employees. I guess with the gig economy, you have uh, Uber drivers and Uber delivery people, you know, they have their apps. So as consumers, we can know where they are, but that's also for, I guess, productivity purposes of, of the um, the platform itself or the, or the Uber itself. Yeah, it's also fair to say, Damien, that um, monitoring in particular in mobile workplaces can be useful as a matter of public safety as well. So, for example, heavy vehicles in Australia, the cockpit, as it were, is monitored for how long the employee, in this case, the driver, is sitting at the wheel and the vehicle is in motion to see whether mandatory rest breaks have been taken. So there's another example of where the use of the technology may be reasonable and proportionate to achieve a socially desirable output, safe roads, but we can readily imagine circumstances in which that same data might be used in quite intrusive and unacceptable way. I understand that uh, Walmart, the giant US company, it has, uh, back in, I think, in, in a few years ago, it patented a technology that could analyse and record audio at, at checkout counters uh, to gauge how cashiers were interacting with customers. Again, a sort of a fairly intense form of surveillance. Yes, and there's a variety of those sorts of uh, technologies around. For example, Fujitsu have a um, facial recognition technology which assesses concentration. So, for example, it looks for the um, small changes in muscle movements in a person's facial expression, such as a tense mouth or how intently somebody is staring, to assess whether they are concentrating. And the technology has a claimed accuracy rate of 85% based on testing in the US and Asia. That's an interesting example of a technology for a number of reasons. Firstly, one can imagine how readily there might be racial or ethnic bias in uh, the detection of whether somebody is concentrating or not by their facial expressions. One can imagine that that might be quite different um, by different cultural and eth- ethnic groups. And uh, secondly, it's an indication of just how detailed and capable these technologies are now becoming. And do we know how and where that kind of technology has been deployed? Has it been for, say, workplace, home-based workers um, sitting at their laptop at home? Do we know how it's been used? So I'm not aware of cases that have involved employers using the capabilities of the webcam to assess the degree of concentration or other inferences about an employer's, as it were, focus on their work. I am aware of cases where webcam has been used in workplaces to detect whether an employee is sitting at a desk for a requisite period of time. Indeed, that kind of technology is quite commonly used in call centre type applications 
including those call centres that became geographically dispersed when call centre workers worked from home during the pandemic. So that is quite common. So I think that the value of transparency in starting the conversation should not be underrated. Professor Peter Leonard, uh, based at UNSW School of Management and Governance, you also run a consultancy data synergies, a business and legal consultancy. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you, Dami. That's all we have time for on The Law Report. You can follow the program on the ABC Listen app. A big thanks to producer Christina Kukolia and to technical producer Tim Simons. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law.